Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast for the issue dated October the 7th to the 13th. I'm Richard Lane. Coming up, we'll be discussing the upcoming World Health Organization Director General election, which gets prominent coverage in this week's issue. I'll also be talking to the author of a research article about intimate partner violence. But first, here's our North American senior editor, Faith McClellan, talking to our editor, Dr. Richard Horton, in Mexico City. So, Richard, this week, The Lancet has been co-sponsoring a meeting in Mexico City. Tell us what that's all about. Well, you know, there have been enormous commitments to health and human development in the past few years, but there has been incredibly slow progress about making any difference to the most vulnerable populations of the world. So what we really need to do is, is stop talking at big global meetings about what we want to do and listen to individual countries to learn from what their experiences are, how they are trying to make a difference for their communities. So the purpose of this meeting in Mexico is to spend two or three days talking about the Mexican health reforms, what the basis of those were and what they have achieved. Have they really made a difference for their peoples and can we learn any lessons from the Mexican experience? Can you tell us something about the major accomplishments of the Mexican health reform? Yeah, this is an interim report card that we are trying to draw up this week. The Uh, government of President Fox came in in 2000 and finishes in December this year. So they've had six years to implement a very comprehensive set of reforms. The major achievement is that they diagnosed the problem. And the problem was that 50% of the population, that's 50 million people, were not covered by any health insurance whatsoever. And they were incredibly at risk. So what the government has done under the leadership of the health minister, Julio Frank, is to design a system whereby 50 million people are progressively going to be covered by a set of services, a set of interventions that will give them a basic minimum level of health care which they did not have before. So the components of that are that they affiliate to an insurance program, They are enrolling 35,000 families into Seguro Popular, the popular health insurance program, every week. That's an incredible target that they've hit. They are increasing their overall spending on health. They're increasing the number of health workers they have in the system. They're strengthening their stewardship of the system in the Ministry of Health. And they're protecting families from the kinds of catastrophic health expenditures that destroy individuals. They're also making progress in actual health outcomes. They're on track on child survival to hit the fourth millennium development goal by 2015. And they've dramatically increased coverage of skilled birth attendants, antenatal care, vaccination programs, hypertension treatment and screening mammography. That's all happening within the past six years. That's a phenomenal success. So that's a great success story for Mexico. What can other countries do? How can they learn from these uh, experiences? I think that is the most important question of all for all of us. And I think there are some very important lessons. The first lesson is... You have to have continuity. These reforms didn't just come out of nowhere in the past six years. They reflect incredibly strong health leadership over the past 25 years. 
They don't throw health ministers out every couple of years like we do in the United Kingdom. They appoint health ministers who actually know something about health, in this case a health minister who has a public health background, strong technical leadership. We appoint health ministers and many other European governments appoint health ministers who don't have the first clue about health and yet we expect them to run a health system. But the, the reforms that have been implemented in Mexico have also been implemented with a very strong ethical vision of equity and built into that a strong process of evaluation. They didn't just want to implement a reform because it was an ideology. They wanted to implement a reform based on very good information, very good evidence, and then they wanted to evaluate that reform. And again, unfortunately, that's something that most governments in high-income countries never do. There's no ethical vision, there's no evaluation, and that is a major thing we can learn. So I think those are some of the most important lessons that we can learn from the Mexican experience. There's prominent coverage this week about the upcoming WHO Director General race to become the new DG. The final announcement will be made in early November. I'm joined by my colleague Hannah Brown. Hannah, can you just give us an overview of the coverage we've given to the WHO DG election this week? This week, we've really opened the debate between the candidates about the role of WHO and what direction it should be going in over the next five years. We decided that the best way to approach this um, task was to put together a set of questions. Um, We consulted with a panel of experts with experience and skills from all areas of global health and came up with six questions that tried to draw out the real differences in terms of values and policies between the candidates rather than giving them an easy opportunity to resort to platitudes or broad position statements that are, um, mirror the kind of claims in their manifestos and um, election platforms. And as you can see from the diverse and interesting selection of responses we've received, which are summarised in this week's World Report, um, but hopefully the full text of responses will be up on our website soon, the exercise seems to have worked really well. The candidates are a very diverse group and there's an awful lot of different ideas coming through in the responses to the questions that we put to them. There does seem to be a strong consensus that the work begun by the late Director General Lee Jung-wook should continue, and most candidates pledge that they don't want to introduce change for change's sake. But there are also some new ideas, for instance, for extending WHO's influence over political decisions in the wider international community, um, for ensuring its independence from special interest groups and pressure from uh, pr- pressure that might result in conflicts of interest in policy making and decisions, and for making WHO's activities a bit clearer and more relevant to the communities they affect. Also, Hannah, we've got a two-page comment in this week's issue by our editor Richard Horton, which takes a very, very careful look, scrutinising uh, each the qualities of each of the candidates. As Richard Horton writes in his comment, I mean, the executive board's decision about who's going to be the next WHO Director General really comes down to the experience and qualities each person has for the job. And he's tried to, um, well, give the executive board a bit of an easier decision by um, going through each of the candidates' experience and rating them in terms of their experience in global health, um, whether or not they have solid experience in evidence for policy making, and their experience of working with health systems in developing countries. There's a handy table that we've published in to accompany this comment, which rates each of the candidates according to those three criteria. And clearly, Hannah, the Lancet is backing 
one candidate as very much the front runner? Well, yes. When you take those three criteria for judging the experience of the candidates, then one person really does stand out, and that's Julio Frank from Mexico. He's currently health minister, but he's previously been a WHO employee. He was involved in the evidence for policymaking department of WHO while he was there. And he's also reformed the Mexican health system to make it a lot fairer for poor people and extend coverage of health care to people who previously couldn't have afforded it. So the Lancet believes that he has the both the specific technical experience and the political skill to take WHO forward in the direction it needs to be going. Thanks, Hannah. And can you just remind us of what happens between now, early October, and around the 9th of November? Over the next month or so, um, the 13 candidates for WHO Director General are jetting off all around the world, uh, attending meetings, holding conferences, putting forward their election platforms and their bids to each of the executive board members for their votes, which they hope will um, ensure their place in the shortlist. Between the 6th and 8th of November, the executive board, the 32 members of the executive board, will meet in Geneva, and that's where they'll go through the 13 candidates and make their final decisions through a series of secret votes about which five candidates are going to be on the shortlist. These candidates will then be interviewed in succession and weeded out, again, through a series of secret ballot votes down to a single candidate, and that that person is who the executive board will put forward to a special one-day World Health Assembly on the 9th of November to be confirmed as the next WHO Director General. Thanks very much, Hannah, and I'm sure we're going to be giving it plenty of coverage over the next few weeks. We will. A research article in this week's issue highlights the issue of intimate partner violence. Earlier, I spoke to one of the study authors, Dr Claudia Garcia Moreno, who works at the World Health Organization. Why did you undertake your study? What had research previously told us about intimate partner violence? Well, we've had information from um, largely industrialized countries for some time now on the prevalence of intimate partner violence. But until recently, there's been fairly limited um, amounts of data from uh, developing country settings, resource-poor settings. And what data we had had been collected in very uh, using different methodologies, different sampling frames, interviewing different uh, women. Some used women who had been married or were currently married. Some used uh, all women, and it was very difficult to really understand what uh, was going on in terms of the both the magnitude and also the nature of the problem. We uh, found that although the data from um, developed countries that existed substantiated that it was a fairly common problem in women's lives. There was a lot of resistance still to acknowledging that this happened in um, other societies. So we felt it was important to start to collect uh, data that would bring it to the attention of policymakers and public health uh, practitioners in particular. And you studied... Oh, you interviewed over 24,000 women in 10 countries. Just a quick word about the countries that you chose. That There's quite a range there. You've got Japan in there as an industrialized country, but you've also got middle-income countries like Brazil and poorer countries like Peru, Ethiopia. Why that mix? We wanted to have a range of both geographically and culturally diverse settings, and uh, 
we were constrained uh, and there are some obvious uh, geographical gaps in, 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 our, in, our, in our database. But we wanted to cover um, different uh, geographical and, and cultural settings. And within countries, we wanted to have also variation. So we chose, uh, where possible, an urban setting, uh, usually the capital or a large urban area, and uh, a representative province that would have a combination of rural and uh, urban population. We also try to identify countries where there was a certain uh, openness and willingness to uh, look at the problem and where there were already uh, groups working on the issue or advocating for the uh, attention to the issue because we wanted to make sure that the data would be put to use. And that involved also bringing together researchers with often women's organizations that were already working on violence against women. You did obviously face-to-face -face interviews with 24, over 24,000 women. So they were self-reporting their experiences of partner violence. What type of physical violence or sexual violence were they reporting? To, to measure the violence by a partner, we didn't ask women if they had been abused or raped or used in terms which can be loaded or can be subject to either individual or different cultural interpretations. So we asked about very specific kinds of acts. We, for example, in terms of physical violence, asked about have you ever been slapped or pushed? Have you ever had a weapon used against you or been threatened with a weapon? Have you been kicked or beaten up? And the same with sexual uh, violence. We try to ask about physically being forced to have sexual intercourse when you didn't want to. This is uh, more and more the convention that gets around this issue of subjective interpretation and we asked uh, women whether this had ever happened to them in the last year, in, the last, uh, in their lifetime, and how often this happened. And what were your main findings? So the main finding was that violence against women is an extremely common experience uh, in women's lives. We saw that between 19.19% and 76% of women reported that they had been physically abused or sexually abused by someone, partner or non-partner, at least once in their lifetime. And when we looked at the breakdown of that violence, what becomes very stark is that women's greatest risk of violence is from an intimate partner. Between 60% to 95% of abused women report abuse by a husband or intimate partner. And also... There are some variations according to where the women were located. As, uh, violence generally was more common in rural, poorer rural settings than, than urban settings? Yes, we found a wide variation both between settings, uh, between countries and within countries. Between one in six to up to two out of three women reported that they experienced physical or sexual abuse. And this uh, trend was for uh, rural areas to have higher prevalence rates than uh, urban areas where we had two sites in the same country. We have looked in this paper at age, education, and marital status, and none of those explain the variation fully. And what is a wealth of this database is that we will be able to look at a range of risk and also protective factors and try to disentangle what is driving these differences in, in prevalence. And what needs to happen now? The study has been very helpful in terms of naming the problem, beginning to quantify the problem in the specific countries where the study could place, took place. It has 
brought the issue to light, generated public discussion, generated discussion with policymakers, and in many ways this represents the first step in addressing a public health problem and also in beginning to challenge some of the social norms around the acceptability of this violence. We very much uh, want to make use of this database to try to understand more what is behind this violence, how do different factors, for example, of individuals like um, history of an abusive family or alcohol use interact with factors at the community or at the social level like gender norms, community cohesiveness or, or general levels of crime and how all of these contribute to, to this violence and hopefully out of this analysis can be some clearer guidance about policy and uh, social norm change. Dr. Claudia Garcia Moreno from the World Health Organization, thank you very much for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much for inviting me. And that concludes this week's podcast for The Lancet, dated October the 7th to the 13th. And do remember, if you have any feedback about the podcast, do email us. The address is podcast at lancet.com. See you next week.